double Elvis. Dear Young Rocker, always remember that no matter how serious you are, you're never really an adult. You can be called an adult at any age, but the word adult is just a concept, a construct, a way to feel in charge, a way to feel in control, a way to feel responsible and capable to continue on. You aren't an adult. No one is ever actually an adult. The term adult is a myth that older people made up, that children went along with, to be able to look forward to something, a concept to allow ourselves to grow and feel important and feel strong, a title to confirm something we made up all along. But as you grow, you will realize that adults are basically just children with a different title. Young Rocker. When was the first time you considered yourself independent and did something on your own? Was it the moment your grandfather let go of the seat of your bicycle? You were nervous with anticipation, unsure if his hand was still gripping the seat for safety. The cool summer air in upstate New York brushing against your cheek as you turned around to capture the memory, riding a bike for the first time? Or was it when you also decided that you wanted coffee and donuts, like the adults? Your grandmother let you order whatever you wanted, so at the age of four, your favorite thing to do was drink coffee and eat donuts. Was it remembering the first time your mother left you with the $20 for pizza? Her hair smelling like stark perfume and wearing skimpy nighttime clothing, she told you not to wait up. No. It was when I was two and a half. My mother used to leave for work early in the morning to work double shifts at the hospital. When I was between the ages of two and three years old, we lived in a townhouse sharing walls with families who had just immigrated to America. We shared backyards, but that was the extent of it. No one shared information or anything about themselves. No one waved from their yards to one another. Most of the memories involved me alone, wandering around the tall grass in our shared backyard, or of me in my bedroom late at night, watching Saved by the Bell. It's funny how, as an adult, I don't care for that show, but the theme song can still trigger memories from that time period. 
There are just some sounds you never forget. I didn't have a bedtime, and I often went to sleep hours after my mother and father did, and slept in until any time that I wanted. With no one home to wake me up, I would crawl down the stairs, climb up top of a dining room chair my mother had left near the kitchen counter, and make myself breakfast. Left on the counter would be a box of cereal, an empty white ceramic bowl, and a spoon sitting beside it. She would leave the half-gallon carton of milk on the bottom shelf of the refrigerator door, and it took all my strength to open the fridge. I would pour the dry cereal into the bowl, and then carefully with both my tiny hands, hold onto the carton of milk and pour it into the bowl, doing everything in my power to not drop the carton, spilling milk all over the floor and counter. After eating my breakfast, I would carefully put everything back where I found it, leave the dirty dishes in the sink, and walk back up to my room to play with my toys or watch television and wander around in my backyard. I was two and a half at this time, and my favorite thing to do was explore the world around me. I remember painting my nails with whiteout, thinking it was the same as nail polish, except that I'd watched my mother use it on paper. What could possibly be the difference? I remember seeing a butterfly for the first time, alone in my backyard, having it land on my finger, awestruck by its majesty, and realizing something so beautiful could leave your world as quickly as it came into it. Flying away into the distance, I could never seem to catch its beauty no matter how hard I chased it. A lot about that house made me realize that things could leave your world as quickly as they came into it. Parents, pets, the exotic fish my mother bought that I often fed my peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to wanting to share with my tiny fish friends, not realizing that what was good for me was actually bad for them. I was never taught that, and it was a lesson that haunted me, something that I still have to remind myself at times. What is good for you can be bad for others. What is good for you isn't always good for others. It crushed me to find out that it was me making the fish sick a hard lesson to learn it too, that you can't share meals with your fish friends, even if they do live inside of a 1980s coffee table that you eat your lunch on. My parents' taste in furniture resembled that of a Miami drug cartel, or photos you might find of Bianca Jagger sitting in her bedroom. Objects often had multiple uses and capabilities. The coffee table was also a fish tank. You could have your coffee and watch the $100 fish swim up to meet you in the morning. The beds were round and filled with water with an option to vibrate. My mother and I would lay on the waterbed under a clamshell-type awning made of gray velvet fabric that hung over the bed, with mirrors and lights and a small black-and-white television inside, beneath the awning. We would lay on our backs together and look up at the tiny television on the ceiling of the clamshell awning, watching reruns of I Love Lucy. There was never a hierarchy. We felt like equals laying there, laughing at all the same jokes, 
falling in and out of sleep on her only day off from work. Most of my memories I have, aside from those circled around the television, were the times I spent alone figuring out who I was and what my surroundings were, trying to understand the world around me and what felt like complete silence and the absence of any real adults. When you are taught to act like an adult and take care of yourself like an adult, you think that when you hurt like an adult, you should know how to fix it. You self-soothe in ways that you have witnessed and you take notes and mimic the people around you. When I woke up one night with a slight fever, I did what my mother would have done. I went into my bathroom, climbed on top of the step stool, and opened the medicine cabinet. I pulled out a bottle of children's Tylenol and drank two tiny purple capfuls. My mother came in immediately, screaming at me standing there holding the bottle. Of course, this is when she chooses to come into my room. I'm sure my small, clumsy body was being louder than I anticipated and woke her up to find me there. The privileges of having medication in my own bathroom were taken away until years later, well into my preteens. So, I guess two and a half, three years old, is when I started to consider myself to be independent. By the time I was four years old, my parents began allowing me to buy my own CDs. I would spend all day watching MTV and making notes of what albums I wanted to own. I'd go into the store, find the rows of headsets, buy all the CDs, and listen to the clips of whole albums to make sure I liked every song before committing to asking my parents for it. My parents were both very absent and very supportive of whatever I decided to do with my time. Anytime we went into a store, I was allowed to wander around look at everything, and grab one thing. Anything I wanted within reason, I was always allowed to have one little thing. It was how they showed their love and affection. Sometimes that one thing was a wacky peanut butter and jelly combo jar, or picking out which Pop-Tart I wanted for breakfast that week, or some crazy colored ketchup. Sometimes it was a toy or a pack of double mint gum. I was raised by the television and commercials often influenced what I chose. Walking through the CD store in 1994, I paced the fluorescently lit aisles, manically grabbing the sample headphones and holding them to my ears. I would put the headphones on and push the numbered buttons and pick whichever album allowed me to disappear into sound transporting me into another space for seconds at a time. Sounds that made me feel in charge. Something to match my spirit in that moment. Anything that provoked emotion and feeling. I was a very emotional and sensitive four-year-old. This time, my one thing I decided that I had to have was the album Smash by The Offspring. I'd seen their videos on MTV and loved all the songs that I heard. I'd been waiting for the moment my parents took me back to the store to finally get a chance to listen to the entire album 
with high hopes of taking it home. My mother headed back to the checkout counter and I ran across the store as fast as I could, almost late to the checkout party. I ran up holding the CD with both hands, falling forward and almost tripping over myself. Catching my breath, I let out a sigh of relief and slapped the CD down on the checkout counter. I looked up at the cashier who seemed to stand 10 feet tall looking down at me. The unspoken rule was that if I didn't find something I wanted while my mother was shopping and make a decision by the time she was about to pay, I forfeited my one thing for that day. There was no room for error or spacing out, and you had to be very aware of when she was heading to the front of the store. Interesting choice. The college-age cashier seemed confused and slightly impressed, holding it up waiting for my parents to tell me that I had to return the album from the shelf from where I found it and pick something else out. Something more appropriate for a girl my age. Something that didn't have a parental advisory sticker on it. Neither my father nor mother seemed phased by my choice. They acted bored, rolling their eyes and letting out a sigh. She likes what she likes. Annoyed the cashier was holding them up. That sums up the parenting style of both my mother and my father. Disinterested. We all did our own thing. While some would view this as neglectful, I think both of my parents were oddly supportive. They fostered a certain type of environment that allowed me to thrive at self-discovery, but I didn't have the structure that I needed or longed for. They weren't particularly present. They didn't really know how to engage with me. They didn't have the means to take me places or give me attention, but they did give me the space I needed to develop a sense of self from early on. My father rarely made an appearance, but would show up sometimes to take me to school. One parent was always working and the other was always sleeping. Mostly it was my mother who was always working and my father who was always sleeping. They rarely spoke to one another or were in the same room long enough to know what I was up to. Sometimes it would work to my advantage and the stars would align. My father waking up around 3 p.m. would ask me, Mm, What do you want for lunch? And with wide eyes, resting my chin on both my fists, waiting for this moment, I would say two words. Happy meal. Happy meal. We would get in the car and drive down the street to McDonald's. Don't Don't forget my sweet and sour sauce for my nuggets. When my mother took me, she knew if she forgot my sauce, she'd have to turn the car around. But if my father forgot, I was shit out of luck. He'd drive straight home, and I would get a lecture on how sometimes we don't always get get everything everything we want. That lecture always felt like it had dark undertones, like he was always speaking in a code that I could never decipher. I always felt like he was talking about his choices and the ones that led him here, next to me, as he let out a huge sigh thinking back on his own young life at 25. Does this mean I'm not gonna get that Barbie airplane with the working intercom for Christmas? 
After McDonald's, my father would either go back to bed or he would leave to go party with his friends, scurrying away like some kitchen roach when you turn the light on in the middle of the night. He knew when my mother was about to get home. She was the glaring light bulb. But I knew if I played my cards right, I could get everything I ever wanted, despite the only advice that my father was giving me. I felt that I knew how this was going to play out. My atheistic four-year-old self practically prayed to God for it. My mother would walk through the front door around eight o'clock. I would be sitting there, like a good girl, doing my homework. She would be too tired from working a double shift at the hospital. Feeling bad about her absence combined with her exhaustion, she would come up to me and ask, Do you want a happy meal? And I would jump up and down and chant, yes, yes, please. Balloons would be released, cinematic music would play. The world was mine. I had to be coy about this. I had to make it seem like I earned it without hinting that I wanted it. I had to make it seem like it was her idea. Exactly 70% of my homework had to be completed by the time she stood over me making it look like I'd been at it for hours. Oh. Oh. Hey, Mom. Hey, Mom. The mission was a huge success. Until a few days later, when my parents were somehow in the same room long enough to have a conversation with one another and piece together that they'd both taken me to McDonald's and that in the span of five hours, I'd been able to devour 12 chicken nuggets, four sweet and sour sauces, two small fries, and two high-sea orange lava burst drinks. I'm sure whatever breakfast I'd made myself for that morning was basically just a stick of sugar I licked from the bottom of a bag. So the total nutritional value for that day would have been a wash. When confronted, I couldn't tell if my parents respected the con job I'd just pulled over on them, or if they were yelling at me. When my mother would ask me, half yelling, half laughing, why I didn't tell her I already eaten McDonald's for lunch, I'd shrug and say, because I did want McDonald's, and you did ask me if I wanted McDonald's. She'd roll her eyes and sigh and let out a, okay, the same way she did at the record store when the cashier questioned my choices. This was how I came to be. McDonald's Happy Meals, 90s MTV, and punk music. You know when you hear a song that you haven't heard since you were a kid? In a moment, a memory comes flooding back to you and you suddenly remember what it feels like to be so small again. A feeling you once thought would never go away. Riding in the back of a school bus, staring out the big back window on your first day of kindergarten. You know what after school freedom sounds like, what it smells like, the exhaust fumes from the bus, the minimal chatter from the kids around you too tired to be rowdy, too in shock from the day they just endured. 
The bus windows are down and you can feel the cool September breeze against your cheek as deep blue somethings breakfast at Tiffany's plays in the background. Somehow at the same time every day when you ride the bus home, that song's always playing. The first time you associated the smell of freshly cut grass with the feeling of a dewy morning, it felt perfectly like youth, like time would last forever, like that moment would go on forever. That's kind of what amnesia feels like. But if the memory of riding a school bus with the windows down and hearing your favorite song on the radio is heaven, amnesia was a dark, silent hell, where time felt both still and like you could never seem to catch up to it. And all you wanted was for it to be over. All you wanted is for it to stop. A deep, black pit of space with no sound to guide your memory back to anything that pointed to your existence or where you existed in time and space. Grasping, searching, trying to remember any sound that could place you back into a moment in time as you drifted in this outer space. An astronaut lost and left floating, completely forgotten about in the abyss. The past was gone, but it wasn't like waking up to a beautiful, light, fresh, and airy start that some might imagine it could be. It wasn't like moving in with your grandparents in upstate New York to start over at another school, leaving your life with your mother behind you. It wasn't like moving to a brand new city with a lover you'd just met, listening to that Nationals album as you drove a packed U-Haul with a single vintage suitcase filled with your belongings over the Brooklyn Bridge in the dead of night. The bright city lights lit up your new home in front of you. It was complete darkness. It was silent. A dark, silent scream that stripped you of everything. A fire that spread through your entire life, burning everything in sight leaving you with nothing but scraps of moments and pieces of who you were, hidden under layers of ash and debris. Amnesia was... deafening. Like going to a show that's so loud you can't even hear the music. Your ears feel as if they may bleed and your head hurts so badly you can't think. When something is so loud, there's actually... nothing. That's what it felt like in this moment. So indescribable. Yet so many layers to feel within it. I couldn't tell how much time had passed since Nate left. Had it been hours? Had it been days? Had it been weeks? There was no way to know. There was a sudden knock on the door. I wasn't sure how long I'd been sitting at home alone on the sofa. I wasn't sure if I was expecting someone or had known anyone was coming. I wasn't sure what I was even doing in the living room, but I was there now and there was someone at the door. So I guess I should answer it. Hey Nadia, I brought you a pizza. 
I heard what happened. It was my friend Patty. I'm not sure if we planned this or if she knew I'd been sitting in my house unable to eat. Feeding myself had become increasingly difficult. It was like I'd never fed myself or dressed myself before. Everything was so much harder and hurt my head. So much more difficult and exhausting and sometimes more dangerous. Patty and I sat down in an uncomfortable silence. I think I was trying to figure out how much she knew about my circumstances or whether I had invited her over. She was nice and kind as always. It didn't seem weird in any way, but it was still weird. Everything felt like that. Everything felt like a secret from myself, trying to piece together entire interactions from context clues. I couldn't remember how well I knew people or where I knew them from. Sometimes I knew that I knew them, but I didn't know the context. Were we friends? Were we enemies? Had it fizzled out? How much time had passed? How did we know each other and for how long? These were always the hardest things to piece together. But usually I would just follow along and laugh as anyone would. Seeing someone who seemed familiar, but you couldn't place their name or where you knew them from. Oh yes, you might say. The party. A Christmas party from 15 years ago. You don't actually remember, but you go along with the conversation to be polite. Except now, I was the stranger to myself. A guest within my own life. Trying to piece together someone else's existence. Moments and memories, and relationships. There were certain things that I knew, but there was no memory attached to that feeling. The little guesses I made about the world around me. Patty confessed to me that she was concerned, not just about the concussion, but something else. None of us like how much time Nate's spending here. Why? He's been the only one here every day helping me. It just isn't right. I wasn't sure what she was talking about. I knew he'd had a crush on me and had been asking me out for almost a year at this point. We'd been best friends for years, but our situation now was ideal. He was finding ways to make my recovery fun and less scary. He made it feel like just two friends hanging out, having fun. I didn't fully understand what she was talking about, but the thought of everyone we knew, friendships I could hardly remember, talking about our dynamic, made me uneasy. How many people were talking about this? My situation? Sure, I was making fun of myself and what I was going through on Instagram. I'd been trying to laugh it off, but I didn't want people to talk about it. I didn't want anyone talking about it. It was weird enough living through it. Me posting about it on social media was my way of coping with it, while also tracking my whereabouts to help guide me and make sense of my life. The internet was now my map.
Eventually, Patty left. I'm honestly not sure if she ever came back. To this day, I'm not sure if we're friends, how or why we became friends, or if I ran into her today, if it would be appropriate to say hello. I still don't know whether I lost friends during this time or if we were ever friends in the first place, or if I accidentally let things fizzle out. The uncertainties made me anxious, and sometimes I just didn't know how to reappear, re-enter into someone's life. I couldn't remember where I belonged or who did and didn't want me in their life. It's just hard to know where I fit in and with who. A decade after the accident, a person I had casually dated for about a year would tell me we'd been in love before I had amnesia. What happened to us? I knew we were supposed to have a date before my accident and you blew it off. He pretended not to remember. Then he told me we were in love. We were really in love. Don't you remember? But I knew we were never in love. That wasn't how this worked. My brain wouldn't forget things like that. My brain didn't make things up or miss things. That's one thing I do understand about this. There are things I know, but I just don't understand the context. Pieces are missing, but not entire situations. My brain doesn't make up facts. It just skips over a few details from that time. And that person and I were never in love. I was grateful Patty brought over the pizza when she did, because cooking had become almost impossible. Apparently, you just couldn't pick up boiling corn. Oh, shit. That was something I relearned. I made a note of that one. I burned myself not remembering the water was hot, not being able to piece together that bubbling, steaming, gurgling water sitting on top of a flame means hot. It was like cooking while intoxicated. What was I doing? Or cooking for the first time. Learning what sounds and things meant in their context. At one point, I was trying to fry something in a pot. I reached in, not remembering the oil was hot, and burned my left hand, knocking it against the pot. I startled myself with the sudden burst of pain, and then knocked over the entire pot of oil over a flame, which splashed onto my face, and the rest spilled out onto the linoleum on my kitchen floor. The boiling oil went flying, and in the process it lit my hair on fire. I was able to put out the tiny flames and felt lucky there was no serious scars on my face. But to this day, a tiny patch of baby hairs sits on the side of my scalp refusing to grow. My hairdresser loves to point it out whenever I get a trim. It leaves me with a constant reminder of how badly things could have gone, how bad they were, and I never even realized it writing off every mistake as a little mishap that could have happened to anyone. I spent weeks relearning how to cook, slowly. At first, my taste buds were completely off. 
The only way I was able to eat was if something involved one step. Strawberries, pretzels, pickles, chips, and candy were now my main food groups. Anything I could pick up and put directly in my mouth was dinner. Eventually, I graduated to dipping. Small twisted pretzels into marshmallow fluff, raw mushrooms dipped into containers of hummus. I was moving up in steps. A bowl of cereal, picking up a box in one hand, pouring it into a bowl, holding the bowl with the other hand, and then pouring the milk. Two steps. These were the things that took me a while. The ability to process multiple steps and maintain order and cognition. The ability to make my brain multitask. Eventually, when I was finally able to cook again, I burnt everything I made. I somehow didn't even notice I was eating burnt food. I couldn't taste it. I couldn't see it. I couldn't figure out why no one else wanted to eat my burnt pancakes and overcooked eggs. Nate kindly told me I was burning all of the food. Uh, the food's a little burnt, but it, it's okay. For a while, and what felt like the longest while, my recovery was at a standstill, and I became arrested in time. When I got done with my task for the day, my brain was too tired to do anything else. I couldn't process the world around me. I would feel things start to slip back into the fog. Still, I wasn't sad or unmotivated by any means. No matter how hard I was pushing to get better, I was just now frozen in this one stage, pushing so hard with what felt like little improvement. Nate came over to find me distraught in my living room. He was coming over after work every night and he even started staying over to make sure I was safe and okay. I looked up at him with tears in my eyes. What if the only thing I can ever do for the rest of my life is make a bowl of cereal? What if I don't get better? What if I can't go to grad school or make music? What if this is just my life now? What if for the rest of my life, the only thing I can do is make one bowl of cereal. What if this is who I am now? Then that's all you can do, and that's okay. I'll love you no matter what. He held both my hands and told me we would figure it out. And that no matter what happened, he would be here. And he wasn't going to give up on me. He sat there holding our hands together and told me that he loved me. I love you. And brought my hands to his face and kissed them. This is something we have been doing. It felt new, but he had been staying over here. He had been sleeping in my small twin bed with me. But I never knew for how long. And while it still felt like we were friends, it almost felt like something more was growing. Not just the contentment within our situation and confidence in myself, but within what was happening. The restlessness of not being able to go back to school or the life that I had. 
started to fade into the background. It was like falling asleep in the snow. There was a sense of peace that Nate was giving me. I was putting so much pressure on myself to get better, to be who I had been before, to remember every little thing that was happening around me, to try and keep up with who I was, who my friends were, and how to be me. The moment he took my hands and told me he would love me no matter what happened, I felt a sense of relief to try and just exist, no matter what that looked like now. If all you can do for the rest of your life is make a bowl of cereal a day, it's going to be okay. We'll figure it out. I love you no matter what, and I'll still be here. Nate knew who I'd been before the accident and loved me for the things I'd done in my past and would love me for who I was now, unconditionally. He told me that. One day he said he had to go and wasn't able to stay the night. He said he had to go to his mother's place in the suburbs and stay with her for the next few days. I wasn't sure when the last time I saw him was. I wasn't sure for how long it had been. I couldn't tell if it was hours or weeks. I pieced together by his demeanor that he'd stayed here before. That we'd done this before. He was closer to me now. Everything I knew and reacted to was based on context clues, piecing things together as they happened. He had held my hands and it didn't feel new. He touched my face and it didn't feel strange. We'd done this before. The memory wasn't there, but I knew we had. I could feel it. It wasn't stiff or casual or with the shyness that comes from the first time doing something so intimate with someone. It felt more like a ritual that was building. He kissed my hands again and then got up to leave. And just like that, I was all alone in my house again. I had no clue how long I'd been there. It felt like I was sitting on that sofa in that living room for an entire lifetime while people came and went. Some I knew, some I didn't, some I would never know again. I was learning how to live alone again. I was learning how to be myself. I was learning how to be independent. Me, alone, in my little two-bedroom cottage, inside the horrors and bliss of amnesia, where everything felt sparkly and light. You've been listening to Dear Young Rocker, season four. We've got 12 episodes coming this season. Check back every Wednesday for new episodes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you want to share your own Young Rocker experience, 
You can follow me on Instagram at Nadia Marie Forever. You can also follow us at Dear Young Rocker and at Double Elvis on Instagram. This season of Dear Young Rocker is written and hosted by me, Nadia Marie. Dear Young Rocker was created by and is executive produced by Chelsea Erson. The show is executive produced by Jake Brennan, Brady Sadler, and Carly Carioli for Double Elvis. Script editing on this episode by Chelsea Erson and James Sullivan. Production by Sean Cahalan and Leah Tatoris. Music for this episode was composed and performed by me, Nadia Marie. You can check out my music, Nadia Marie, on all streaming platforms. Thanks. We'll see you next week.